Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. My guest today is Sam Quinones, and I am really excited to have Sam joining me. A couple of years ago, Sam, who is an investigative journalist based in LA, wrote a book called Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opioid Epidemic. When this book came out and it kind of eventually percolated into the physician community, I, I received it as a gift from um, actually my father, who's a retired physician, and it rapidly moved through the physician community. This is one of those books that leaves a real impact that when you read it, you have to sit for a minute and kind of digest what you just read, what you just learned, and what it means for the world that we live in right now. And I could not be more excited to have Sam come and join us on the show to talk about this book, talk about the experience writing it, and give us a sense of what the landscape looks like as our country really comes to grips with this with this epidemic and the impact that it's having and the road forward to, to navigate it. So Sam, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Mark. Uh, great to be here. Thanks a lot. So I read this book. It's probably been about a year ago. You and I have been circling each other for a while trying to put this together. And I'll tell you, I like to kind of keep track of the books that I set aside on my bookshelf so I know where they are and I can refer back to them. They're sort of the pantheon books. Battle Cry of Freedom about the American Civil War. That's one of them. And the band played on about the AIDS epidemic. That's one of them. The World is Flat about globalization. That's one of them. And Dreamland is number five. This is the most recent addition <laughs> to the Pantheon. This well, is one of those, you. yeah, this is one of those books that we're going to be referring back to for a while. I, I, I don't oh. want to step too much on the content of the book. We need people to pick this up, read it, download it, access it and learn from it. But what I want to start with is you've been an investigative journalist for a while. There must have been something that prompted you to say, this is going to be an epic project. This is going to take a lot of time. I don't know where this is going to lead me, but I'm going to chase this down. I'm going to look into this story and see where we go. How did this yeah. start? Well, it started uh, in a, a bit differently than I think most people enter this topic. Uh, most people enter this topic through medicine, through uh, opioid painkillers, narcotic uh, painkillers. And, and it could be in their profession, on their personal life. They get prescribed this, or they see it around them, or they see addicts around them, what have you. I had none of that. I did not know when I started this project what a Vicodin was, say. I did not know what a Oxycontin was. I'd never heard of these things. I'd heard of Oxycontin, but was just, you know, kind of didn't really know or care. What I was really interested in most of all, by far, was Mexico and Mexican drug trafficking. I had lived in Mexico for two year, for 10 years, I'm sorry, written two books. And my focus, uh, I was then at the LA Times, I'd left Mexico, come back to LA and work for the LA Times. Uh, my focus was really on everything related to Mexico and the interface with the United States. So immigration was a huge, was probably at that point, I'd written more about Im Mexican immigration than almost any reporter in America, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm fairly confident. And then, uh, increasingly, as the war in Mexico uh, uh, kicked off, the drug war and all, I began to uh, learn more about that. When I was in Mexico, I didn't really do much on that because it really was 
the big issue was immigration and political change in Mexico when I was down there. And so I began to uh, dig in more and dig deeper and, and, and I found some stories that, I, that, that taught me more. And then along the way, I began to realize that we were seeing a, a real uptick, a real surge in heroin use in America. And that really stunned me. I've had no explanation for that because I had been a crime reporter uh, most of my career up to that point. And I knew a lot of fair amount about heroin. I knew that it was this old drug that nobody ever did. So why now would we be doing this? And I, so I began to find uh, stories that, that, that kind of ex- uh, illustrated this. And one of them was a story about this one town I talk about in the book. Uh, Jalisco, Nayarit, where guys who come from that town come here and have perfected a system for selling heroin retail, uh, very much like pizza. I won't go too much into it, but but because uh, it's in the book. But but basically, the idea was that these guys were kind of like this vanguard, it seemed to me almost, uh, of heroin sales. As I further, I got into it, and they they had now a market all across the country. And I was like, how on earth did this happen? They were selling in areas where there were no Mexicans, you know, it was just West Virginia being one, Southern Ohio, places like that. And so as along the way, I began to chart their system, talk to people in prison who had been part of their system and all. And along the way, I began to realize that the reason they were in, uh, doing such banner business and in parts of the country where there was, I never considered connected to heroin in any way, like West Virginia. Whoever thought of West Virginia and heroin in the same sentence? Nobody, you know. And all of a sudden, that's where you find it. And so I, I began to uh, understand, as I the more the farther I got into it, that that their market was really new market was really due to a change in in in, in American medicine and pain management in American medicine and this very very aggressive uh, um, push to to prescribe and use uh, narcotic painkillers for all manner of pain and in large large quantities. Um, and so it was that that kind of was the thread, I guess. Uh, I backed into this story through through heroin and from Mexico, and it was only later that I learned what an OxyContin was and a Vicodin was. I, I didn't care any about that. I didn't really had no interest whatsoever in writing one word ever in my entire career about healthcare in America. It was not interesting to me until until it became something I could not avoid. It became the bigger, much bigger story than these heroin guys. Uh, was this pain management uh, revolution. It's so interesting, right? We see these two sort of race cars racing in parallel, but they don't necessarily know that the other one's there. There's what you're doing, the work that you're doing, looking at how heroin is percolating out of Jalisco Nayarit across the United States. And then on the other side, there is the explosion of opioid prescribing and the various ways that that manifests. They don't know that they're actually steering towards this collision that is going to be so impactful, so powerful. Like, you know, this interview is sort of a perfect representation, right? On the physician side, I'm seeing how we're prescribing and how we're educating and meeting patients who are addicted to opioids and also meeting patients who have legitimate acute pain needs. And, you know, we need to try to serve those needs. And for you, right, you're doing the research on the explosion of this. Yeah trafficking in what felt like a, a drug that no one was using anymore. What's going on? And so here we find ourselves it the timing, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's sad. It's tragic. And you also, you just couldn't script having these two huge forces come together like this. Well, that's what really made me understand that I needed to write a book about it. It wasn't just that one had led to the other. Yeah. It was also that the techniques used in selling heroin, these that these guys, this one group 
because they're they're not the only heroin sales uh, 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 traffickers from Mexico. Uh, there are many, but but these guys use these techniques, this system uh, of selling heroin like pizza, it's kind of a delivery system. A lot of branding, a lot of marketing, a lot of um, attempting to keep a customer using. Uh, to me, those those techniques looked an awful lot, lot like this, the techniques used by uh, pharmaceutical companies in getting people to to adopt this uh, and doctors getting doctors to uh, and uh, to adopt more aggressive uh, prescribing habits uh, with regard to these narcotic pain pills. They they, they seem like twin tails of, narc- of of drug marketing. One was the underworld, the other was the legitimate world, but they use similar techniques. And when I hit when that hit me. A while back, um, I began to think, "Oh my God, that is a that is something I had not seen, and that is something that that needs a further explication." I felt, and and then yes, they don't know anything about one another. I've asked these guys from Jalisco, "Do you know why you have such a big market? Do you know what OxyContin is?" And I get these kind of blank stares, like, "What what are you talking about?" No, why why should they know? They don't speak English. They're in the car with these guys. They're not doing poll, polling from this, these, these addicts to find out why these addicts are addicted. They just sell them the dope and they're on their way. And, and then they go back home. They really just want to go back home and never, not really hang out too much in the United States. They don't know much about this country. And I'm quite sure that the, that the, the pharmaceutical companies uh, who push this idea and the pain specialists who push this idea that we can now very aggressively prescribe these drugs you know, really had no knowledge of any kind of uh, Mexican drug trafficking connection whatsoever. They are independent stories that just happen to collide, as you say. So when you now look at the collision itself and where it's left us, we're all still trying to wrap our heads around the opioid epidemic, right? We can say the word epidemic pretty easily. We can put a lot of numbers on it, but I want to get your sense of scale, not from a numerical Uh. perspective, but Take us on the road with you, because clearly in this book, you're on the road, you're traveling a lot. Take uh-huh. us across the kind of the, the sprawl of this, right? This is like a giant water balloon yeah. shattering on the ground, spraying everywhere. How far out are you seeing this this impact? Oh, pretty, pretty far. In fact, I use the word epidemic in the title. Um, later, I read an article by a guy, an American scholar whose name escapes me, I think, who had a better analogy in that there was this was kind of a, ca- a cancer that was metastasizing kind of almost a life of its own you know almost a horror story monster or something that that kept on growing and spreading and and you know and um what's fascinating about it and, and disturbing about it is that it seems to be now in virtually every part of the country i will say this though it's almost entirely white people it's not a lot uh, of, of some people within the black and Latino Asian communities uh, getting hooked up on this, but but not not really that many. Uh, it's very notable in the fact that it is a, a pretty much a white phenomenon. The most un- I, I suspect is most uniracial drug phenomenon we've had in our country, certainly in modern America, uh, since World War II. Say it is a sprawling and and affecting all manner of life in suburbs. In, in, in cities to some degree. Uh, it's what struck me also is, of course, this starts really in the Appalachian area and in, in, in uh, Rush Belt uh, towns and so on. But really, it's gone way beyond that now. It's gone so far beyond that. It's gone to some of the nicest suburbs, the suburbs that pe- where people have done best in the last 20, 30, 40 years. These are the places where people are getting addicted 
uh, on drugs used of all things, you know, to numb pain. Why, why look at their lives. Their lives are perfect, you know? And, and, and so you find it there in LA where I, where I live, our, our heroin beltway would be Orange County, Simi Valley, Thousand Oaks. I mean, these are very nice, nice suburbs with everything seemingly perfect and so on. Uh, you, you of course find them in small towns. It's part of the malaise of small town living. I think in America, small towns have been just crushed, hollowed out, very, very, very disturbing, very damaging thing for the country, if you ask me. But a lot of um, those places, part of this hollowing out now is uh, on top of everything else, an abandonment of lock, lock, loss of, poly, of uh, jobs and population is also now opioid ad- addiction. And so you see it every, you also see it, I have to say, on a lot of uh, Native American reservations. That's why you're finding, I've, I've counted, I can't remember, maybe 10 or 12 Native American tribes who are suing these pharmaceutical companies as well. When you're doing the work, when you were actually putting this puzzle together, how much road work did you do? Were you, was it were you on the phone? Were you in the car? Were you rolling with these guys with their balloons filled with little doses? Like, no, no, no. How no, granular no. were you able to get with all of this? Uh, a pretty granular, I, th- I felt, but still, I mean, I was wa- working on a razor thin budget, very small budget. Sure, sure. And, and not a lot of time. So I had to pick and choose what, um, I, when I interview criminals, I try my very best to meet them in prison. Prison is the best place to interview them. Uh, first of all, because it's safe yeah. and, and they're stationed, you, you know where to find them. But also because I, and this is a very important part of it, they, are, they become more thoughtful in prison, I found. A lot of guys can really have some interesting things to say. They've had time to think about what they've done with their lives and, and how they ended up in this position. I found people to be far more thoughtful in prison than on the streets by, by quite a bit. And so I try to find those folks in, in prison. I try to find personalities. I believe that that um, I know historians don't have a uh, have a dim view of this idea, but I I do believe that that uh, history is made by people, by individuals, personalities. And so if you could find those people, uh, you can tell the story or at least a big part of it. And I was lucky enough to find a few of the folks, a couple of guys from Nayarit, for example, who were very important in the spread of their system. I found uh, 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 people in, say, Portsmouth, Ohio, who were who were very important in in understanding the uh, the whole pill mill phenomenon. I found people whose individual stories uh, reflected uh, what was going on. I found, for example, uh, the families of two football players at the University of Akron. What uh, their 2009 football team basically just collapsed under the under the weight of of pill addiction and the, and the quarterback and the, the star cornerback uh, both died of heroin overdoses later you look for people uh, stories who can bring out the larger story that you're trying uh, to tell and I was very lucky I was very persistent too I have to say very aggressive in, in, in trying to find these folks uh, still a lot of folks I probably could have included honestly every day I, I speak at a, at a, at a at a, at a conference or someplace, I meet somebody and I go, damn, if, I, if I'd known you when I, when I was writing the book, you'd be in the book. That story is incredible, you know. Um, but, but you do what you can, you know, and, and particularly on a very thin budget. I, I can tell you this, what's fascinating, I think, is that this story, um, when I was writing it, nobody gave a damn about it. Honest to God, there was no interest. People, people were wondering why I was writing it. Uh, f- uh, families weren't talking about it. My, my agent took my book proposal around to, I'd say, 15 to 20, something like that, publishers in New York City. One, 
one of them bought it for a, a, a very generous, but I would say moderate uh, advance. What um, years were this? What years were 2012. You to, so even in 2012, it was crickets. Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. And 13 and 14. I could tell you, I just was, my wife and I would have these kind of very worried conversations. My wife um, could tell you that we, she thought it would take us three years to two to three years to pay off the advance, which was again, not much. And turns out we paid it off in about three months. But at the time we were, and, and, the, and that's a reflection of where we were as a country on this topic. Yeah, Nobody wanted to I talk asked. about of course, fabricating I... obituaries, you know, people hiding it. Families wanted to hide it. People say, well, you're only paying attention to this now because it's mostly, mostly white people, you know? Well, yeah, uh, except for that, the, the opposite was really true that this thing stayed quiet. Because it was mostly white people, because those white families, many of them, Apple, I mean, I'm sorry, middle class families and or upper middle class families all across the country wanted to hide it, invented obituaries. Uh, it did told people lies about where their son was for the next nine months uh, in Wyoming with an uncle or something like that. You know, you just didn't see any interest in part of media, really. You didn't see any interest, I, I, with a couple of exceptions, from politicians. Um, and then the book comes out and after that, it's just, it, it's a very, very, very different, different story. But I can tell you in the middle of it all, I was like, what the hell have I done writing a story? No one cares about, you know, even though it's killing people coast to coast, I knew that was true, but it just, you know, no one cares. And, uh, it was a, it was a disturbing thing to confront. I have to say the, the subtext of the book that I drew out gets to what you were just describing. There is this undercurrent of two phenomena in Dreamland. One of them is the, is the subtext of denial and the other one yeah. is the subtext of shame. And I think that those are the powerful drivers that you were just describing that this was so hard to acknowledge. These were communities. These were people. These were, uh, professions. I think they're that aren't one used the, to seeing this. I would think they're one and the same. Yeah. Honestly, denial and shame come together. Absolutely. Uh, honestly, Absolutely. There, there's a stigma that, that, that people feel because yes. remember, the, the, the families who were being affected, most of them grew up in childhood or adolescence in the 70s and 80s when uh, so that was our last heroin problem in the 70s. And he grew into that with this kind of ominous feeling about heroin. Oh, my God, that's the most scuzzy drug. Who wants to never hang out with it? You smoke weed, even do cocaine, never do heroin, you know. And, um, and then all of a sudden, fast forward 25 years, 30 years, whatever it happens to be. And their kids are dying on McDonald's bathroom toilets with needles in their arm. And it, it's, it's like this too much. It's a lacerating torment for these families while the kid is alive. All the things that prom the lying, the stealing, the conniving, the jail time, et cetera, et cetera, all that goes along with addiction. And then on this other, on the, on the other side, then the kid dies. And then the worst thing you can imagine is that people would find out why he really died. Yeah. Not so much, not so different from the, uh, AIDS uh, epidemic, you know, when everybody was supposedly dying of cancer, you know, that kind of thing. It's interesting that you mentioned that, right? One of the books that I mentioned that's in sort of my personal pantheon of books and the band played on about the AIDS epidemic sure. written by sure. Randy Schultz who died of AIDS. I mean, it's who died himself. that same yeah, yeah. theme of why can't we talk about this? The, the, don't look, that's not happening. It's something different. And then all of a sudden, look at what we are confronting. My goodness. And I think it's because uh, uh, what I was mentioning, but also because we we just we didn't feel this we were this was <laughs> our life script so yeah. many families just thought no you know my life script is something, it's uh, something very 
very different, you yeah. know, and yeah. uh, I, that was part of it as well, I think. I had some dark moments reading this book, to be totally honest with you. The, the hardest sure. part for me was your really vivid description of methadone clinics and how the people that were in line to get their methadone dose, and methadone is a medication that is prescribed to people who are trying to overcome an addiction because it, it, it sort of, the best term is it sort of mutes the brain's need without giving you the euphoria of, of opioids, but these people who are waiting in line, the the dealers are cruising by and they're exploiting yeah. and they're exploiting that addiction. To me, that just that just hurt me. It was so right, sad, and right. so I wanted to ask you as you're doing this work, right? You were seeing this and hearing about it firsthand. What was the what was the darkest time for you? Was there a place for you as you're doing this where you're seeing the shame, you're seeing the denial, you're seeing the exploitation, you're seeing the death? Was there a time you're like, man, this is this is too much. This is hard. It, it, there were there were there were times. I'm not sure I can remember exactly uh, what prompted it. Always, there were times when I was feeling like, man, this is this is a grind. Yeah, this was a story that that. Um, but that's why I wrote it the way I wrote it, because I, um, you know, very short chapters. Yes. Uh, not long, twenty, thirty page chapters. I wrote it. I wrote the with, you know, uh, uh, three, four, five, six page chapters, because I thought that if I did not, if I wrote it the traditional way, like many, many other heroin books have been written, frankly, uh, I had a few of them on my desk at one point, and I looked them all over and say, nobody read these books, why not? And, um, and one is that it's a downer topic. Well, that comes with the territory. So how can I change that? And that's when I began to understand that I needed to keep the chapters short, very, I envision the book, Kind of like the same way you would envision um, one of these great new TV shows on cable or whatever, you know, Breaking Bad, The Wire, where, where or a, a, a book in which you kind of had to read on, you couldn't stop. And and the way you did that, I felt, was to create each chapter as a kind of a scene, uh, a scene, or, and 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 separate the stories. So have the stories be. You start with story one, then you jump to story four, then you go to story three and then back to story one and back and then over to story five. And, you know, the way that, that really great storytelling happens in TV to keep you on the edge and wondering, Oh yeah, what's going to happen next? What, where does this one lead? Where does this uh, storyline lead and, and have the chapters be short and, and each chapter end with a kind of a, a feeling like, uh Oh, something's going to happen. I wonder what's next. That kind of thing. That's why I wrote it the way I did, because I, I felt that this topic, if I wrote it the traditional way, no one would want to read it's, it's, it. Would be, it would be only the people who had to read it would read it. And that's not what I wanted. I wanted it to be a story for uh, to, to, it would take life. Uh, it's a downer, depressing, fatalistic uh, a topic, um, I, but I wanted it to somehow take life. And, and the way to do that, I felt, is to take a page from a really great visual storytelling in TV and so on. The the construction of the book really is one of the strengths of it, and it takes us on these parallel journeys. You're just constantly going down further and further. You finish right. a chapter, you feel like you've just been through a 15-round fight, and you've got your next 15-round fight about to start. And I think that that's exactly kind of what we're dealing with, right? We are the, this is dead weight that is pulling us down, and it is our responsibility as a as a community to to figure out, and as a society, to figure out how to how to start to pivot that. And and I think the 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 challenge now, right? Dreamland Book Two is the road forward. Have you started to see where the light is going to be? Where we're going to start to well, pull here's, this dead here's, weight up? Here's what I'm I'm, I'm doing with my uh, 
with my um, with uh, with the n- next book I'm kind of trying to envision right now. W- one thing's happened is that since the book's come out, I've been overwhelmed with speaking invitations. I've been I've been traveling a lot, speaking yeah. all the time. It's been it's been amazing and very gratifying. A little wearying, uh, I have to admit. Yeah. Um, but it's it's so I haven't had a lot of time to re- really think in depth about what the next. But but. My publisher is pushing me to do that, and I'm happy to do it. <laughs> I can imagine, um, yeah. You know, and so, but the idea was I didn't want to write another book about drug trafficking and drug uh, marketing. I felt that Dreamland did what a very few books do, and uh, normally stories are broken in our in our culture by media, by uh, newspapers or magazines. Uh, they're fairly well weakened now. But and so maybe books, but whatever the case, this Dreamland broke this story. There's one way of looking at this epidemic is one way before the book, and the epidemic was definitely another way after that. And I I felt that very very palpably in my life. So I I didn't really want to repeat that. And I know that there are a few other people coming out with books now that more or less tell similar or the same story. And you're going to see those in the next six months to a year. And I felt like okay, let's do something else. I want to do something different. Um, and so the idea is I want to put together, I think, a collection of nonfiction journalism stories uh, about a community uh, destruction and rebuilding, isolation and collaboration. These are the themes I want to touch on in these stories, because I think these, as I got into this story, I began to believe that, yes, it was about drug trafficking. Yes, it was about drug marketing. But there was deeper themes to these to this story. And, and, and they were how we have destroyed community in the ways that, that would bring us together. And and uh, um, things that would bring us together, for example, Dreamland Pool in Portsmouth, Ohio, yeah, uh, yeah. which brought people together for 50, 60 years. And then they dug it up and then it became a town very vulnerable to to the um, to opioid addiction. I want to write stories about how we destroy community and how we uh, how places are attempting in small ways to rebuild it. And some are and, and also, you know, maybe attempting and failing, too. I don't want to make this Hallmark card journalism here i want this to be you know an idea of of that this is that this is um uh uh uh, reality we're we're dealing with not everything works 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 well it's not perfect and so that's kind of where i'm headed with all this i would say you took a an an unsparing eye to and i and i expect that you'll do this as you continue with your work and i think it's important for people to realize that the unsparing eye wasn't just on drug traffickers, that same level of scrutiny, implicit criticism, and, you know, full exposure was also cast on the profession of medicine. And that yeah. was really hard as a busy physician, you know, and someone who takes a lot sure. of pride in his job and works with lots of doctors and nurses and people who love what they do to read yeah. that and say, Oh my gosh, this is, we're, this profession, this noble profession is part of this problem in a lot of ways. Was it hard yeah. I mean, for you, right? I mean, did this change the way you view American medicine? Yes, but I'm not sure it changed the way I viewed American doctors. Honestly, uh, I, uh-huh. I came away with a, a more, uh, a more charitable view of doctors, I would say than, than maybe other people I've met along the, along the path and uh, during my speeches and so on. Uh, because, uh, doctors were in were the, the the kind of the the focal point of many many pressures. Um, uh, one of them um, f- coming from pharmaceutical companies and and pain specialists who were saying we got to make 
we're, we don't treat pain well. We need to do more, far more, far better way, of, a job of doing that. And 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 we have the the tool, and that tool is narcotic painkillers. And you guys need to make far greater use of them. Uh, there was um, uh, this kind of drumbeat in the media. Oh, we're in an epidemic of pain, and and you know the truth is. There was there was some truth to that. There was a there was we weren't very good at treating pain. It wasn't a, a, a fabrication that this was the case. It was the case, um, uh, and, but as in our in our uh, urgency and fervor to to change that, we we began to that pendulum began to swing and it never stopped swinging, and went all to the other way. And uh, at the same time, uh, doctors are faced with managed care, which means you got to turn those patients in and out real quick. Uh, that we lose as Americans, we lose the most precious uh, commodity that we have with doctors, which is time spent with the doc, just being able to talk about what's going on with your body and and maybe hear a little bit of feedback from the doc about what you might try and this kind of thing. That was kind of the way medicine was for many years. And then with managed care, that that effectively ended uh, a kind of a community-based healthcare uh, we lost as well, a, a feeling of, uh, you know, uh, yearly yearly physicals. How many people actually go for their yearly physicals anymore? Very, very, very few. A focus on wellness, we began to lose that. Um, and at the same time, doctors are, 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 are feeling very, very intensely this feeling on the part of Americans that they want to be fixed. They don't want a lot of uh, hassle. They don't want a lot of um, hard work. They don't want, but they want to be fixed. And medicine has taught them that this can happen because for if, if all these blockbuster drugs are, are, you know, what are they? They're, they are, uh, they are drugs that absolve us of the worst consequences of our bad behavior. So you eat poorly fatty foods. Well, there's a cholesterol drug. They'll take care of that statins and whatnot. Uh, hypertension. There's all these different kinds of things that have, that have combined to absolve us of the, the worst consequences of our bad bad behavior. And we got, it kind of got into that idea, doc, you just need to fix me. And I'm on my way, you know, and a doc once told me, I I thought things were changing when I began to see patients showing up for, um, antibiotics, demanding antibiotics for cure for, for symptoms of the common cold, that kind of thing. You know, everyone wants a pill for, for everything. Well, the focal point of that intense pressure of doctors and, um, a lot of doctors knew that this was crazy, a lot of doctors knew that pain was not a, a vital sign. A lot of doctors knew that uh, these pills were most certainly addictive and it depended on the person and the person's background. And you really had to pay a lot of attention to that. Um, and a lot of people knew that the longer people were exposed to these pills, the more they get addicted. But there are all these pressures, legal uh, pressure from patients, probably pro- pressure from your hospital, from your HMO, whatever it happens to be, on and on. And doctors, and 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 then of course people, doc, younger docs are being taught this that this is the way to treat pain. Massive dosing of of narcotics is the way to treat pain in medical schools. And soon a cultural shift just gradually takes place. Marketing works basically, you know. And 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 so docs, yes, I, I would think that that a lot of them would would look askance at this and, and wonder why, but there's a whole lot of pressures pushing them, uh, in one way. And a lot of it has to do with our own American health consumers desire to avoid accountability for poor behavior. So when a doc says, uh, you know, um, gee, you know, part of your pain might be that you eat poorly or you need to get more exercise. We're like, yeah, I don't think so. You know, that's, I'm not going to do that. That's hard work. It's tough to fit in my schedule and on and on. So just fix me. Right, right. So this is an outgrowth of all that, I think. I think, though, that one of the things that can be an accelerant of moving the pendulum back is going to be 
physician behaviors changing, physician understanding of how yes. to manage pain, physicians sure. learning, becoming more facile with how to help patients manage expectations around pain and a, 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 an informed conversation around risks and benefits that, yeah, I can give you this prescription, but we need to talk about what this means, how we're going to manage it. Do we need to create a pain contract and you're going to yeah. come back and we're going to see how you're doing? I think that that sort of dynamic is becoming much more commonplace. It's becoming much yeah. more normalized as it should where we recognize there are syndromes of acute pain where we need to help people get through them. People have traumatic injuries. They have a big surgery. Yeah. Things happen, and, and we need to have these tools in the toolbox. It's just making sure that we can move people through that with you know short courses and informed consent and shared decision-making so that everyone knows, okay, we're dealing with a potentially dangerous power tool. Let's make sure we got our goggles on and our eye protection and our hand protection so we don't get hurt. It's that same sort of thing. We're using medication that could potentially be addictive. Here are the side effects. Here's how we're going to mitigate the dose. Here's how we're going to reevaluate you. As that becomes part of education, right, at a population level, one hopes that that can become a tool that moves the needle a yeah. little bit. No, I, I think that's absolutely true. You're seeing now, of course, more and more places return to what how pain management was practiced years ago, and that is a more holistic way. So taking the individual and trying to figure out what are many many uh, um, treatments or, or strategies that we might use to the one one on the same person, and opioids maybe being a small part of that, but but um, only a small part. Um, and you're seeing that one place you see that right now is the, the VA. The VA has radically transformed how it how it does its um, its uh, 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 pain treatment. It was an early adopter of opioid therapy. Now you can get you know acu uh, acupuncture and tai chi and and physical therapy and all these other things that would help you with your with your with your chronic with your chronic pain. A crucial issue in all this, I have to say though, is one of the main reasons we got into this we haven't touched on is that um, uh, as there was this drumbeat for more use of these pills and that these are non-addictive and we have a, you know, uh, uh, insurance companies stopped reimbursing for uh, pain techniques and strategies that did not involve these pills. And so acupuncture and physical therapy and marital counseling, job therapy, all these different things, cognitive behavioral therapy, all that stuff got, you know, basically they stopped reimbursing for it because those take a long time and they re require the patient to buy in. And sometimes you weren't getting the patient to buy in. And sometimes it, it was just too long for the insurance company's very short term horizon. I believe nowadays in order for us to turn a corner on this one crucial thing is that we absolutely need to pressure, lobby, cajole, push, whatever you want to say, insurance companies as a class to start um, reimbursing again all across the country for pain strategies that do not involve um, uh, narcotics. And, and the reason is because if all we do is, is lower the amount of supply uh, that's being prescribed, of pills that's being prescribed, but we don't give doctors other alternatives, other options, um, this is what got us into it. All these docs felt there was an epidemic of pain, patients were demanding it, and I've got but one tool. And that's pills. I'm smiling as I hear you say that because that is the exact conversation that we've all been having that, you know, when, when these things come like, yeah, great, you're right. We need, we, we need to mitigate the use of opioid pain medications. We need other tools because people still have legitimate pain syndromes yeah, that require sure. management or their quality of life will go, will go dramatically down. And, and, and if you don't do that, that's and right. if you don't do that, what ends up happening is either, um, they're in pain or more likely a lot of them will 
uh, feed the black market. We'll go to the black black market. And that is cruel, it's inhuman, and it's uh, dangerous as hell. And so uh, uh, to me, the the way we we have to do that is to get back the way things were in the 80s, 70s and 80s, when a lot of these insurance companies paid for this stuff. And it was not viewed as outrageous or, or, or quirky. You know, it was viewed as just normal um, that, that, that a person would a, 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 a human being would require many approaches to something as complicated and mysterious as their chronic uh, uh, pain. And it was not just uh, one thing like a pill would do the trick uh it doesn't make any logical sense to me as a layman i can see i can say and and i think a lot of doctors see it now as well there's they're switching back to that a lot of hmos have tried that have started that i think like like uh you know the biggest hmo is uh is uh is the va essentially and 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 they're doing it there's a lot of places that are that are that are doing it i think we need to get insurance companies and i think this is a function of lobbying AMA should be, I think that might want to very well be something they might want to take on. Uh, because to me, there's, there's, there's really no safe gradual, uh, exit from this very catastrophic problem without doctors having uh, a wide variety of tools, uh, available to them when it comes to the complications of chronic pain, which can be very weird and difficult to understand and, and, and hard to treat. I think the way you've just described that is is absolutely perfect, and I think that you would find pretty much unanimous agreement from those who are trying to help patients move through chronic pain syndromes or managing their own chronic pain syndromes that, look, we need a multimodal approach. We need to come at this from a yeah. lot of different directions. You spoke a little earlier how earlier in the decade when you started doing this work, it was, you know, it, it was like no one was looking. It was no attention. You're one of only a handful of people who is – as well versed and as heavily sort of steeped in this uh, anywhere. Have you noticed though, the numbers of people that are engaging with this as a problem? I mean, we see it in the newspaper, but in terms of understanding, in terms of tangible impact, in terms of real engagement, how much would you say we're moving in the right direction over the oh, course yeah, of no, this? Oh yeah, no, and I would say very much in the right direction. Uh, I would say that that I go to county after, this is what I've seen and it's very encouraging, I have to say. First of all, uh, HMOs, hospitals, um, doctors groups, uh, various stripes, nursing groups, public health nurses, public health groups are all very, very uh, focused on this and in a way that probably not so long ago they really were not, you know. But apart, even apart from that, uh, you, I think you're finding county after county after county is fascinating to watch. Um, uh, forming a task force or, uh, you know, uh, forming a, a, a collaborative, some kind of collective working group to, to, to uh, uh, and I'm, I'm a reporter and fairly cynical, honestly, when it comes to task forces, I've seen a lot of task forces. I'm not sure they always do much, but, um, in this case, I'm very, very encouraged by it because what you're seeing is these groups come together and they're bringing together a whole lot of new characters, not the usual suspects when it comes to drug like not just cops and jailers and judges and blah, blah, blah. It's uh, clergy. It's PTA. It's Kiwanis and Chamber. It's uh, Chamber of Commerce. It's uh, maybe coaches, college presidents I've seen, recovering addicts, doctors, uh, uh, hospital administrators, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is so, so encouraging. And you, what, it's encouraging because I see it everywhere. It's an amazing thing to watch, to see all these different counties forming these groups. No, I, I don't think I've been to a county yet that hasn't formed one of these things. And what I love about it, 
honestly, is that it's messy. It's not perfect. They're they're kind of groping for answers, and I think, uh, you know, that sh- we should apply. We should not be upset at that. We should not fret over that. That's the way things work. You know, it's only in Hollywood or in pharmaceutical marketing when one thing works mag- magically and and all our problems are solved. That's what that's what got us into this, and I think we need to revel in that. You know, in, in Silicon Valley, I always bring this up. Um, uh, when I'm talking about this, I find it fascinating that in Silicon Valley, uh, you're not really taken seriously, apparently, if, unless you've had two or three companies fail, right? And 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 I think we ought to apply that. I think that's not a bad thing. Yeah, okay, we're going to try this. We're going to we're going to work together. It's an amazing thing because the re- and very ironic because when you think about it, these drugs, the addiction to these drugs, are the most some of the most isolating drug class of drugs that we know are opiates. You you get addicted to these things, you just cave into it. You just come into this little bubble all by yourself, right? Well, um. And, and and that is uh, the, the, our response to that has been very exhilarating. Americans coming together, breaking down, battering down those silos that kept us apart, learning to work together, learning each other's cell phones, first names. Um, it's weird, but I get this comment all the time. I'll see, I'll meet with some of these groups, and they'll say, you know, five years ago, you never could have found all those different cast of characters in the same room together. They didn't even know each other. Small county, they still didn't even really know each other. Now, our, 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 I think this is a, an exciting uh, 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 opportunity. This catastrophe, national catastrophe, is actually an exciting opportunity because it brings together people, learning together, learning once again how to work together. This isolating drug has provoked Americans to br- kind of jump the silos and move beyond all that and, 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 and work together. So to me, that's that is an, a very encouraging thing uh, to see, and I'm seeing it everywhere. And the other final thing I'll say about it is that they that that nobody did a a pilot project, right? Nobody did a pilot project that said, okay, now we've got the ten points that you need to follow in order to follow to form a uh, an opioid uh, task force. No, everybody just began doing it organically and and stumbling along the way and figuring out what to do and all this stuff. And that's what I find exciting about it. It's not, it's coming very organically from the grassroots of America. I think that if, as you described yourself as being a cynical reporter, I think if, if someone who is a cynic can find that sense of optimism in what's happening, I mean, I'll, I'm going to take that. I'm, I'll carry that for sure. You know, this is a, this is a daunting problem. And if yeah. we're already starting to see that sort of grassroots approach start to have an effect and start to have a, a an annealing and some, and a healing at the same time, I think that we're, that, that is exciting. And in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm gratified that, that you have that sense because I was concerned that this was going to be, you know what? I've done this work. I've written this book and boy, we are adrift. We are nowhere. And it doesn't sound like that's the perspective as we move uh-huh. into, as we move into the next decade and we really re- come to grips and, and, and have a reckoning right. with what we're dealing with that there is that sense of optimism. Uh, for me, there is. Um, and I, I, I testify in one of the more surreal moments of my life. I testified before the U.S. Senate uh, Health Committee, Lamar Alexander and Senators Lamar Alexander and Patty, Patty Murray in charge of that committee. Um, and I told them I thought that this was a great opportunity. It's one of the great opportunities of their of their public service life. Um, it was an opportunity to revive, to rebuild uh, various parts of America. I thought that we we were we ought to think in terms of of a Marshall Plan for rebuilding America 
uh, and not just the Appalachian Rust Belt regions, but you know places across the country, inner city and 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 uh, and uh, uh, rural New Mexico, say uh, Central Valley of California, that kind of thing. Um, I, I do view this. I, I do think it's important to view this not as um, a uh, as a catastrophe, of course, which is what it is most definitely, but also as an opportunity, um, because when you do that, you defeat the dope itself. The dope. Dope, the heroin and opiates really want you to kind of succumb to this feeling of inertia and fatalism. Well, what can we do? Nothing. It's too daunting. Addiction does that. Uh, you just think you can't possibly move beyond it. Oh my God, I'm just gonna. I'm, that's who I am. I'm just an addict. And t- a little towns begin to feel that. Oh, that's who we are. We've lost our manufacturing. We're just a bunch of uh, losers in the gl- great globalization uh, gambit. And, and so, uh, well, might as well just accept who we are, that kind of thing. And, and I think that's, that's wrong. I know and I understand how easy it is to think that, but I think we need to um, move beyond and see what we, this as, a, as, a, as an opportunity, as a great moment uh, for, for everyone, but particularly for public officials and people in public life to, to inspire, use this to inspire us to, to see the possibilities of rebuilding, the possibilities of reclaiming and rebuilding community that are, that are inherent in this. And to me, that is where this needs to go. And, and, and if we can do that, then, then we may, as this one woman told me one time, you know, if we can do that, she said, um, we, we, we may thank heroin one day. That is an extraordinary perspective. I'm on the road with you. I think a lot of people that hear you speak are going to be on the, on, on want to join that path as well. Those that read Dreamland, they're going to have that same feeling of, man, this is daunting, but having that juxtaposition of hope and that idea that, you know what, there's, there, there's a road forward, I think, is, is just incredibly important. And it, like you said, it's inspiring. You know, for me, it's the, the Pantheon has expanded. It's Battle Cry of Freedom. It's The World is Flat. It's End the Band Played On. It's The Prize. And now we've got Dreamland. And so this is extraordinary to have the opportunity to speak with you about the work that you've done. And I I'm, I'm really grateful that those who have an interest in this and those who are maybe frightened by it. And those who obviously have direct experience with it can continue to learn and can hear firsthand about kind of where we are. And most importantly, that sense of how we can shake loose from that inertia and start to move things forward. Well, it's been great talking with you, Mark. I really appreciate the, uh, the opportunity. It's been wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.